my friends to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 110 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. My guest on today's show is my longtime friend, George Y., whose story is readily identifiable to any alcoholic raised in a dysfunctional family. The unpredictable rage of his father and an emotionally deficient relationship with his mother set George on track for alcoholism and drug addiction from the very start early in his teens. Lacking the basic direction and support from his parents, he migrated toward a life in which solace and comfort were provided by the substances he used and the people with whom he hung out. Dropping out of school after the eighth grade, George's direction followed the route of wrong decisions made under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Brief stints in two rehab facilities ended with no handoff to AA and inevitably failed. Finally, a third rehab experience connected him with AA when he got out. That was over 30 years ago, during which time George became firmly ensconced in an active and accountable AA program. George's success with personal recovery in AA has manifested itself in service to young people with whom he shares his experience as an alcoholic teenager with kids facing that very real prospect in their own lives. In the process of making his AA-guided service to others both a mission and vocation, George's impact on the recovery community is broad, admirable, and transformative. As you listen to his story, you'll gain a perspective of what it takes to use success in AA to make a difference to those young people who need it now or sometime down the road. I believe you'll find enjoyment and inspiration in the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, George Y. My name's George and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, George. Thanks for joining me on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Of course. I appreciate the fact that we're doing this after a meeting today because I know I always feel better coming out of a meeting than when I walk in. I felt pretty good walking in. How do you feel after that meeting today? Oh, it was a great meeting. Um, seeing so much long-term sobriety and actually having personal relationships with the people who are picking up 30, 40 year chips. Um, so the best thing about the, the uh, group is just not only the length of sobriety, but the relationships with the sobriety and the people that are in the meeting. Yeah, it, it is really very cool. As a matter of fact, I've done a number of these interviews after that meeting. How long have you been sober? I, I was trying to figure it out. I try and keep up with your birthday. So my sobriety date is the 4th of May, 1992. So I have 30 years of sobriety. 30 years of sobriety. So what was going on in the months preceding your coming into AA? My use had just progressed to the point where I was... Um, pretty much locked away in an apartment in, Sharp, mm-hmm. in Sharpstown, um, using cocaine, using alcohol, scared to leave the apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had been progressing, you know, relative to my age for a really long time. But, you know, kind of the final straw was getting arrested again for mm-hmm. a charge that had intoxicated somewhere in the, in the uh, charge. And uh, the feeling, or maybe even just the statement, mm-hmm. that um, Harris County was pretty tired of me and that, you know, I could choose treatment or I could choose to spend some time in an orange jumpsuit, which I wasn't really thrilled about. I chose treatment, but I, I don't think I chose treatment because I wanted to get sober. I think I chose treatment because it was the lesser of the two evils. Yeah. And of course, like most of us, I didn't understand what sobriety meant. You know, I went to treatment for the first time at 15 again at 17, and then that last time that I talked about after I was coming out of jail again. And the first time at 15, the problem was alcohol, but I was gonna keep using cocaine. And then the next time the problem was cocaine, and then I was gonna keep using alcohol. And it sounds funny, and I know a lot of us in recovery kind of laugh about the insanity of thinking that somehow it's related to a specific chemical. But when I think about it, I don't think about it as something funny, I think about it as not knowing the facts about the disease that I have. Yeah, I just thought that that made sense. Uh And so this last time when I went to treatment, I knew that there were 
some things in my life that were terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand what was wrong with me. So at 15, treatment looked like, I always joke around and say it was kind of like summer camp for doplings. You know, they took us <laughs> in and we did a lot of talking about our feelings, which I guess is important. Mm -hmm. But um, they didn't introduce us to any kind of long-term recovery plan. Mm -hmm. It was more about if you keep using, you're going to keep suffering these consequences. And I was a really smart kid, so I knew that if I kept drinking and using, that I was going to keep ending up in psychiatric facilities and keep getting arrested and those things would keep happening. But what they didn't do at that treatment center is tell me what I could do to not feel how I felt when I didn't use. And like most of us, the problem wasn't the drugs and the alcohol. The problem was how I felt when I didn't have the drugs and the alcohol. Yeah. And I would do anything to not feel that way. Is this a throwback to your family of origin? Do you remember when those feelings might have started for you and your growing up? So my family history is that both of my biological parents were 17 when I was born, but it was a time when teenage pregnancy was a lot less acceptable. I don't know how acceptable it really is today, but it, certainly back then it wasn't. Sure. Weren't able to care for a child, and that became pretty obvious. So I was placed in a home with a family who eventually adopted me, but in that family there was a lot of mental illness and a lot of alcoholism. It was really unpredictable and chaotic. Yeah. And so I think that anxiety, that restless, irritable, and discontented started way back before I would even know how to call it that. When were the biological parents first out of the picture? Were you still a baby when you were adopted? I was still an infant, yeah. Did you ever get to know or ever get to meet your biological parents? I, I met them both as an adult, like once I became an adult, and actually not really until I got into recovery. A lot of us do. I was just living day to day in my addiction. I wasn't thinking about searching out my biological family. I was just thinking about who was I going to rip off that day to get some dope. So your biological parents were out of your life from the point at which you were an infant until you, you found them much, much later in life. So everything that you got in terms of legacy mental illness or legacy drug addiction and alcoholism was passed down by your adoptive. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting things I think about looking back on my story is you know, the forever debate of nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not aware of the genetics of alcoholism or mental illness in my family, but I'm certainly aware of it in the nurture part of the family that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot that gets imprinted when we watch the people around us deal with their emotional dysregulation by putting chemicals in their body. Mm -hmm. So if you're watching your dad who has a lot of stress and a lot of mental illness, managing that mental illness by just drinking heavily, then you know that imprints in your head. And, and not only that, I think we're looking at the example of what it means to be a man by watching you know, whoever the father figure is in our lives. Yeah. And what that meant to me by watching him was you live life as hard as you possibly can. He was pretty violent. He actually was a construction worker and, and suffered a pretty traumatic brain injury um, at some point along the way, which affected his ability to control his emotions. So he was a rager? He was a rager, yeah. And a rager in a really irrational way. It wasn't like an event happened and then that triggered rage. It would just trigger for a reason that was unpredictable, which I think you know really amplified anxiety because it's one thing if you know, hey, if I do A, B is going to be the result, and the result is my dad's going to rage and become violent. This was just, it could happen out of nowhere at any moment. I grew up in a household like that, too, and, and kind of coincidentally, my dad had a traumatic brain injury when he was about an adolescent. His was very much that way, where you couldn't really predict, you know, and you never knew what eggshell you might step on that was going to trigger it. That's a tough way to grow up, isn't it? It's a really tough way to grow up, and... I think as adopted kids anyway, you know, there's a particular set of like challenges that come with that, just yeah. attachment things. And it's just such a weird crapshoot in the universe. Mm -hmm. Like you could end up with the most loving, nurturing people in the world, or you could end up, and I guess that's true for people with their biological parents as, as well, but it seems even stranger when you think one slot further up on the list or one slot further down on the list, it could have taken my life in a completely different trajectory. For me, one of the difficult parts of that experience growing up was while my dad was that way, my mother was also emotionally not really available. So all of the things that she might have done to intercede or minimize or mitigate 
the abuse we were, the four of us, four kids were receiving, she just wasn't able to do it and she had her own mental health issues. What was your adopted mom like? It was very much like that. I think one of the biggest factors was just the, they were much older when they adopted me. And so, you know, my dad was a kid oh, yeah. during the depression. They met at University of Texas, um, but my dad had just come out of the mm -hmm. service out of Korea. And so it was very much the idea of father goes to work every day, mother stays home, takes care of the kids, very, um, you know, mm -hmm. 1950s sure. kind of belief system about how families were supposed to be. So I think my mom hung in there because in her mind, and plus she was raised Czech Catholic, so you just didn't get a divorce. Um, she hung in there because she just thought it was her obligation to do that. But I think she was as scared as any of us were. Did you, did you have step-siblings? I had an adopted sister who was, uh, so okay. she's almost three yeah. years older than me, and she is on the mm. autism spectrum. And so, you know, as well as you can connect with somebody who's um, high-functioning um, ASD, and, you know, she's still in my life, and we still see each other, and I think more so when my kids were younger, because I think when they were elementary school, they sort of connected on the same emotional and yeah. cognitive level. And I think now as my kids have gotten into high school, you know, there's less and less that's, of that connection. Tough. So, But I think what they did that was part of the misunderstanding is that they treated a lot of the symptoms as disciplinary issues rather than yeah. um, neurological issues. And so if you're screaming in class or if you're argumentative or disagreeable or um, overstimulated, then, you know, that's dealt with through consequences rather than through adaptation of the educational yeah. method. So, you know, I, I look back and have a lot of empathy for her because it must have been terrifying and lonely to be so, um, particularly with the sensory um, processing disorder stuff, to be so overwhelmed all the time by the world and then punished for being overwhelmed by the world. And then come home and it's just as bad, but worse. It's worse, yeah you're not getting any of the understanding that you need. When you were a kid and all this stuff is swirling around, a rageful dad, a mom who, who maybe not emotionally is available to you, a sister with her issues, what did you do before you found alcohol and drugs to get out of whatever feelings were associated with that or, or to distract yourself or to isolate yourself? What was, what was George's life like as a little kid before you found alcohol and drugs? Yeah, I think what I did was take on the role of peacekeeper. So I would kind of move around the house trying to make everything okay. So if it seemed like my dad was going to be upset because somebody was being too loud when the news was on, I would try to mm -hmm. quiet the house down. Mm -hmm. Or if my dad and my sister were arguing about something, I would try to jump in and make it okay so hmm. they would stop arguing. And so where my sister, just because of the way her brain worked, was mm -hmm. very much a fighter. So when my dad would rage, mm -hmm. she would fight back. That wasn't me at all. I was the person who, you know, tried to just um, comply with whatever I had to to keep from, you know, being the target of whatever was going on. But you could probably never release what you needed to release in the midst of doing that, right? Absolutely. No, I just completely lost myself in it because it was a full-time job. And even doing that job full time, it was not rational. So we're trying to respond to irrational behavior with rational decisions, which is an exercise in futility because if it's irrational, there's no amount of thinking it through that's gonna make it make sense. When you're talking about thinking through irrationality with a child's mind, <laughs> to me that sounds like a, a, a recipe for disaster. It, it was terrible and also because we don't have that prefrontal lobe development that help, mm -hmm. helps us with reason, um, I think it was more of a fight or flight response. So, you know, my way of flight was to try to smooth things over because I wasn't a fighter. Even through all of my drug and alcohol use, I was never much of a, of a, of mm -hmm. a fighter or um, I tended to be a conflict avoider than a conflict um, instigator. So how did you take that kind of behavior and the feelings that you had within the home, how did you take the, that out into your other relationships or let's say into school or with friends? I always had a lot of, well, a lot. I always had a group of mm. really close friends. I was a mm -hmm. really social kid. And I think 
what we end up doing, um, coming from families with that much dysfunction, is I think we end up building our own tribe, even though we don't know we're doing mm -hmm. that. So the other kids that were living in a lot of dysfunction in the neighborhood, we tended to just sort of be drawn to each other. And so I always had a little pack of troublemakers <laughs> that I was with and a part of. What kind of troublemaking? Oh, you know, before um, drugs and alcohol came into the picture, which actually came into the picture pretty early on, we would just steal stuff out of people's yeah. garages and, you know, do whatever vandalizing we could. I grew up in Sharpstown, so I lived you know, a 10 minute walk from Sharpstown Mall. And we would go up there and just figure out all kinds of ways to get in trouble. Um, and yeah. there were plenty. And those were the days when the malls were central meeting point for kids, adolescents, preteens, and certainly um, teenagers. So when do you remember your first uh, encounter with, with alcohol where you took a drink on your own accord? I wasn't really much into going to school in elementary school. I. Um, just didn't go to school a lot. And because my parents were so dysfunctional, they really didn't have the time and energy to argue with mm -hmm. me about going to school. And so I uh, just stayed home by myself a lot. Did the system miss you? I mean, they, they, they did. Um, I mean, they would call and say I was absent, but I would be absent wow. for like a week at a time and stuff like that. But I think it was much different back then. And once I started drinking and using, I think they were yeah. pretty happy to not have me there. But um, my memories of starting to drink were those memories of being home mm. by myself while all of my peers were in school and getting the alcohol that was around the house because you know my dad was a mm. regular drinker and um, stealing that alcohol and it's much like you hear in in meetings the first time I drank I got that sense mm. of ease and comfort you know I remember like that feeling of being home by myself first of all the chaos was removed because nobody was home and second of all pouring the alcohol on top of that was sort of the magic potion, right? I mean, at least had this window of time where I didn't have to live in the anxiety and the uh, chaos of what was going to happen next. So that's at what, uh, 10, 11, 12? Yeah, I think fourth, fifth grade, yeah. And I think I smoked weed for the first time. I know it was before I left oh. elementary school because it was at the park that was attached to the elementary mm -hmm. school where I went. Um, but that was maybe, the weed smoking was maybe one or two times in elementary school. The alcohol use became a lot yeah. more constant um, simply because the accessibility was so easy. Well, being able to get it from your own home, that, that certainly would have made I it mean, easy. We could buy cigarettes as kids back then. We just say, oh, my dad sent me to the store to buy a pack of cigarettes. I mean, and the drinking yeah. age was 18. And so, you know, even though I had so much access at home, also, there were always older kids in the neighborhood that at least looked close to 18 that you could get to buy you alcohol. So. so the first time, the first number of times that you got drunk or got a buzz from the alcohol, what were you thinking when that occurred? Was that a feeling of, of, of relief or did you feel like you'd found the magic elixir? Or what, what were your feelings? Yeah, I think that was exactly it. It gave me a period of time that was like a respite from the insanity mm. and the chaos and everything, just even three or four hours of, you know, sitting in front of the TV, home alone, um, and being able to maybe, for the first time in a long time, take a deep breath. Hmm. Were you able to regulate that at all, or did you just keep on drinking and drinking and drinking? Yeah, I was never a uh, manageable drinker, so I, you know, the allergy was on me from the very first drink that I took. I didn't, you know, it was never a, I'm going to drink half a glass of whatever's here. It was always, you know, as soon as I started drinking, I was just going to keep drinking until I was separated from it, either by passing out or running out. Yeah, it's not unlike most of alcoholic behavior. You go, you always overshoot the mark. But I'm envisioning a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid drinking enough to be physically drunk and noticeably drunk. What was the response and consequences you know, it's always strange thinking back on childhood stuff from that age because we remember it through a certain lens, right? So, um, but the lens that I remember it through was that it wasn't really something that they noticed that much of. There was so much alcohol use going on in the house and maybe they did notice it, but they were just so overwhelmed with their own lives that they didn't have the energy to deal with just yeah. one more problem. You know, it was like that intermittently up until I left home where I wasn't exactly allowed to use drugs and drink in my house, but I wasn't exactly ever 
told that mm -hmm. I should stop doing it. Except for like every once in a while, like maybe every two or three months, my dad would just lose his temper and come into my room and tear everything up and, you know, have a violent response to the bong and the empty liquor bottles in my room. But then a week later, it was back to me just smoking weed and drinking in my room again. And no consequences from and that. And no consequences from that. That's a rough daily life to have to live. As probably with your dad, like you were saying, with the traumatic brain injury, it was always an emotional response. It was never a measured response. It wasn't, okay, my kid is smoking weed and drinking alcohol on a daily basis, so this is the steps that we should take because this is what makes sense. Yeah. It was never that. It was just some, you know, all emotion. So you go from grade school to junior high and high school. What were those years like for you with regard to drinking and drug use? So for sure, by the time I made it to middle school, I was a daily drinker and drug user. And I just, I struggled to get through, I think I, maybe it was seventh grade that I had to take mm. two shots at um, to get through. But eighth grade was the last grade I actually finished. So at some point, around 14 or 15 years old, it became obvious that it was safer to leave yeah. than it was to stay, just because of the violence that was going on in the home and things were getting worse. And you know, my dad's alcoholism was progressing. You know, he had gotten to the point where he couldn't work, so he just like laid in bed most days because I think the brain injury also contributed to really yeah. severe depression. And so, you know, him being home all the time was not conducive to a safe place to, to be and stay and sleep. And so I more or less left home with some occasional comeback homes when I ran out of places to go or stay or something like that, but was more or less homeless. But being homeless in my neighborhood as a kid was never really like being a homeless kid in somewhere where there was a lot of abject poverty. What being homeless back then meant was I would stay on somebody's couch for two or three weeks and then float on to the next place. The generation of parents who were raising their kids back then were the generation of parents who grew up in the 60s and 70s, so there was a lot more tolerance of kids drinking and using because the parents were still like, was holdover from them. And so your friends and their parents all knew about the kind of home that you came from, so you got a little bit more understanding? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is true, but I just think that there were a lot of parents that were doing a lot of partying and a lot of like, you could, as a kid, you can always find those parents that are permissive and let kids drink and use drugs in their house. And then when you don't have a place to stay, you just work on them to, hey, I don't have any place to go. Can I stay here a few nights? And then a few nights turn into right. a couple of months. And then that was usually the, the game that I played to try to make sure I had some place to stay. And it worked pretty well. I mean, I had a couple of places that I ended up staying wow. a year or more with a friend's parents, that sort of thing. Um, but it was day in, day out drinking, using drugs, because also I always found that pack of kids who were kind of in similar situations to me. So by the time I wasn't going to school anymore, I'd already found a pack of kids that weren't going to school anymore. So you had your crowd that you could run with. I had my career, yes. Now, where were you in the hierarchy of that crowd? I guess it depends on when. I mean, I think that because I was a year uh -huh. older in eighth grade, I think that I uh, had a lot of influence for the behavior. And plus, being able to just pretty much do what I wanted when I wanted was a big help. Like I, when, when you're 14 years old and you can go to the skate park and surf every day, it's like hitting the lottery, right? You don't know if there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> and all those kids around you who have to go to school or have to do this or that, even though they're in your gang, they look up to you because you don't have to do any of that kind right. of stuff. Right, and I did go to school probably about 50 or 60% of the time in eighth grade. I mean, I, I wasn't completely not going mm -hmm. to school anymore, but. Nobody would say anything to me if I took a week off and went down to Surfside and spent a week at Surfside surfing, or if I just wanted to go skate that day. Like, and of course, it was before cell phones. It was before all that stuff. So you know, the school would call during the day, but there was nobody there answering the phone. And because I had been busted a couple of times at school with drugs or selling drugs, I think the general consensus was school is better without George here than it is with George here. And it would be different, I think, if there was some kind of parental support for the school. Like, I mean, it's okay, kids get in trouble, that happens. And when you call the house and the parents show up and there's some kind of collaborative effort to help the kid get back on board, that's one thing. But when you call the house and you have no way to partner with parents or a family member to try to help get the kid back on the page, I mean, what do you do? So I don't, I don't think it had anything to do with the fault of the school system. Certainly truancy and things like that are treated different yeah. these days. But 
there are still plenty of kids that the school system loses because there's just no structure or support in their lives. Well, they write them off as a lost cause and they've got so much else to do that they can't spend a whole lot of time considering the fact that they've written a kid off, right? right. So here you are, you've essentially dropped out of school before ninth grade. You're doing what you want to do. You're drinking and using drugs. Now by drugs, are we talking about weed uh, every day or what other kinds of drugs were involved? Yeah, for sure. I was a daily weed smoker. Um, and then just whatever else, you know, we could get our hands on. It was yeah. the 80s, so, you know, cocaine was really prevalent. And I did a lot more cocaine use as an older teenager than mm -hmm. I did as a younger teenager, just because of the cost associated with it. And then crack came out, and so, you know, that was the poor man's cocaine, so. Um, and then later teens, you know, ecstasy hit the scene, and, um, but, you know, even as a young kid, like, I, I would use inhalants, I would use anything I could get my hands on. And if, or when I was a kid and I went to your house, the first thing I was doing was asking if I could go to the bathroom. And what I was really doing is shuffling through your medicine cabinet, mm. looking for any pills that had the droopy face guy on them. And so, you know, I didn't know what they would do, but if it had the droopy face guy, it meant that they were going to do something. Yeah, what, what was going on physically through all this? I think maybe it caught up to me um, in my later mm -hmm. teens and in my younger teens. Um, even though I was drinking and using a lot, I was also, also pretty athletic and not in a traditional athletic sense, but I skateboarded like crazy. And I, uh, and I walked everywhere I went. And I surfed a lot. You were in relatively so, good shape. Well, yeah, I got a lot of physical activity, even though I was smoking Marlboro Reds <laughs> along with everything else I was doing, because that was right. the cigarette of choice <laughs> of my peer group. I think the activity was in some ways a saving grace, being out in the sun and getting the vitamin D and whatever else it was, even though I was pretty toxic, I was at least doing things that were different than laying on the couch and hmm. playing video games because that's the, that was what my friend group was into. So. You mentioned earlier about blacking out. Was that a frequent occurrence for you while you were drinking? I can't remember the first time I blacked out. I know that alcohol early on caused me to black out. Um, towards the end, right before I got sober, any drug I used, with the exception of smoking mm -hmm. weed, pretty much had the potential to cause a blackout. Like ecstasy could cause a blackout, cocaine could cause a blackout. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's just the progression of the disease. I think our brains become less mm -hmm. and less resilient. Yeah, I spent a lot of time blacked out, especially the last couple of years that I was using. But I also wasn't leaving my apartment much the last couple of years I was using. And that's really when my cocaine use was the most prevalent, locked up in the apartment with the blinds constantly being bent down as kind of the um, state of affairs when you reach you know, chronic cocaine addiction. Um, you know, that social kid that was always out doing things and had a crowd and all that stuff had deteriorated to the point where you know, there was really nobody that wanted to be around me because I was a pretty repulsive. How long did that take for you to get that way? How long, you mean when I was using and yeah. functioning the best? I think it got the worst over a course of about five or six years. Yeah, because the friends just sort of slowly started dropping off. You know, I, I was not a very um, morally upstanding person. So if it meant that I was going to use, I would, you know, without a second thought, steal from my friends, steal from their families, um, rip people off on drug deals. Just, you know, I mean, you become more and more desperate. And that desperation causes you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. And, and um, I think it all stems from that fear of feeling the way we feel when we don't have drugs and alcohol. And I just repeat that over and over to, to people when I'm talking to newcomers is, you know, and, and it clearly says this in the big book, but you know, the problem for us isn't the drugs and the alcohol. The problem for us is how we feel when we don't have the drugs and the alcohol. So it's that right. restless, irritable, and discontent unless we can again experience that sense of ease mm -hmm. and comfort. So that was you as you were growing into your later teenage years. Yeah, and then the second time I went to treatment, even you know at 17, I still wasn't introduced to 12-step recovery. I mean, I think I had some very distinct ideas of what treatment looked like, but um, the last time I went to treatment, I think the guy that saved my life, and God, I wish I could remember his name, um, was the counselor at the treatment center where I went, and he told me, you can come to treatment here, but first I want you to go to a meeting and pick up a desire trip. You bring me back a desire trip, I'll let you into treatment. And so I went to the Houston Western Club, which is an AA club that doesn't exist anymore. The only place I really went to meetings the first year I was sober. Um, 
picked up the desire chip and went back and, and I argued with them at first because by that time I had gotten really scared of people because of all the alcohol and cocaine use. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea of walking into a, what I imagined was going to be this giant room of people. And thinking back on it, the uh, meeting room at the Houston Western Club was probably enough to hold 30 or 40 people. But back then it seemed like, you know, I was walking into Toyota Center or something to pick up a desire <laughs> chip. And, um, but I went back with that desire chip and went into treatment. And, and, you know, keeping in mind what I said earlier, which is I still didn't know if I wanted to be sober. I knew I wanted to stop feeling the way I felt, but what I think you all as a recovery community in Houston offered me was the idea that we can teach you how to not feel that way and you don't have to have all these consequences. So that's kind of the first message is you don't have to feel this way anymore. So at 17, you're in your second treatment center. Third was uh, when I finally got sober, I had, it was about three weeks after my 24th birthday. So you had these opportunities at the treatment centers that you were in, at least in the last treatment center, the person who ran the place understood the connection and the importance of a good handoff between treatment and AA. And I think the, the, the important part of making that point is that I've been sober since the first AA meeting I walked into. That's interesting. And I've been sober since that meeting, I believe, because y'all were all able to tell me, we have a plan that can help you not feel that way. Um, unless you were able to tell me something that was gonna help me not feel the way I felt when I didn't use, I wasn't listening to you. Because the desperation of wanting that anxiety, restless, irritable, and discontent, the, the drive to make that go away was greater than any consequence that I could ever imagine. Um, at least at that age, it was so desperate that I would be at my probation officer at 9.30 in the morning with a tube of toothpaste trying to get the alcohol smell off my breath so I could go see my probation officer. But it, it was still better than that terror that was on me when I woke up in the morning. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who have never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. This period between 17 and 24, so there's a seven-year period in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, before you finally got to treatment that ended up working for you. The first couple of treatment centers obviously didn't have the kind of handoff into AA or you weren't ready for AA at that point, such that that could be an effective handoff. Yeah, there was actually no mention of it, yeah. particularly in the, when I was 15, which, you know, I've got a lot more perspective on now, not just because I've been sober 30 years, right. but because... You know, I've been around a lot of young people getting sober. And you're in the therapeutic community yourself, so you see it every day. And I don't think AA is right for most 15-year-olds. Um, yeah. And I know that that's maybe a controversial opinion, but I don't think Bob and Bill ever imagined a 14-year-old um, addicted to Xanax walking into a meeting and hearing words like pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And it's not that a lot of kids at that age are missing the desire to be sober, it's that their brains aren't fully cooked. Yeah. You know, and there's so many abstract concepts in AA that for you and I, when we read the book, we're like, yeah, that you know makes sense, physical allergy, mental obsession, um, we're able to grasp onto it. But younger kids, their brains just aren't developed to the point where they're able to abstract thought that way. And really the brain isn't fully developed, they say, until 24 to 26. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot worse for us guys too. Yeah, yeah. especially, especially. So we have a seven year period then. Tell me what, what was going on in, within that seven years for you. I was working off and on at any job that I could find. I was uh -huh. a fry cook at Grandy's um, Chicken <laughs> in Sharpstown for a while. Yeah. I worked as a plumber's helper for a while. Uh, I mostly gravitated to places where alcoholics worked. 
hmm. because there was um, some level of tolerance for my um, daily drug and alcohol use. Like, uh -huh. like the construction business was a great one because if you could get a job as like a plumber's helper or I worked in a warehouse assembling hot tubs, things like yeah. that. I mean, there's it's kind of like the hospitality business in the sense that smoking weed all day long on a construction site was never something that anybody even gave a second thought to. Right. And going out after work and getting ripped at the local bar was just what yeah, everybody just part did. Yeah, it's part of the deal. And, um, you know, slowly the friends that would hang out with me, even the people that I found that for a while drank and used the way I did started to not drink and use the way I did, not because their drinking got any better, but because my drinking got worse. They just didn't want to be around they, you? I, people just didn't want to be around me. Oh, that's tough. What were your feelings about that at the time? Were you like, good, go your own way, or, or were you longing? Yeah, I was terribly lonely, which I think you know, makes sense, would contribute um, to the more drug and alcohol use. But mm -hmm. I mean, we reached that place where you can't pour enough drugs and alcohol on the anxiety and the loneliness to make it go away. And so, you know, that part that we read in the book all the time where it says we'll reach a place where we can't imagine life with or without alcohol. And that's, that's the jumping off place, right? That's the place where I was. God, what a blessing that people like you and me have someone offer us that opportunity yeah. to figure out how to not be, because when it stops working and you have to live in that constant terror, you know, then eventually something's got to give. Now with the knowledge that you have, not only with all the years that you have sober, but, but all the, the experience that you have around what's going on with regard to mental health, looking back, would you say that you had any sort of depression concurrent with your alcohol and drug use? For sure, anxiety. And, and I'll probably talk about anxiety in the same context that I would talk about alcoholism in the sense that I didn't used to have anxiety. I have anxiety. Huh. Um, I have an anxiety disorder. Right. Um, and we used to not be able to, in 12-step recovery, talk about mental health in conjunction with our... And this is the, the thing that, that I think, in retrospect, makes me feel pretty sad about my early years of recovery. Certainly, working the steps, sponsoring people, being involved in AA changed mm -hmm. my life dramatically. And the old-timers that were around back then were so great to me. Um, yeah. because I didn't even know how to do things like balance a checkbook or rent an apartment. Mm -hmm. But I have 30 years sober now. I got sober in 1992. So you think the people that had 30 years sober when I got sober got sober in 1962. Mm. Um, and the mindset of people coming out of the 50s and the 60s as it relates to mental health was you know, not the way we understand mental health today. And then just learning the history of AA and understanding how much Bill struggled with depression his entire life. But for maybe, you know, like I said, maybe the first five years of my sobriety, my anxiety was so intense. I thought if I just sponsored enough people and went to enough meetings and did enough things that the old timers were telling me that it was going to make this anxiety disorder dissipate. Yeah. And it never did. And finally, somebody who was not in our fellowship, but very close to the mental health field said, dude, why don't you go see a psychiatrist? Because I had yeah. been in therapy, and I'd been in talk therapy, and mm -hmm. certainly that helps. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage anybody, particularly with the kind of trauma that you and I grew up with, to do therapy. I mean, you know, AA wasn't designed to deal with childhood trauma. It was yeah. designed to help us figure out a plan for living so we don't drink ourselves to death. Um, but then, you know, sought help from psychiatry, and it was life-changing. And... I think where the sadness came in was looking back over those five years where I was listening to people telling me that it was an AA problem, not a mental health problem. Um, and, and I say an AA problem in the sense of I just wasn't working hard enough at my program. Yeah, now you and I both experienced the same thing maybe a few years apart because when I was new in, into AA, you know, I suffered from clinical depression my whole life, but it had never been diagnosed. And, and one of the most difficult things about anxiety and depression is that everybody knows what anxiety feels like because everybody's gotten anxious once in a while or everybody's gotten the blues for a while so they think because they understand how they get through that by sponsoring more people or saying more prayers or reading the big book or going to more meetings for those people it makes sense that those activities get them through those 
occasional feelings. But when those same people are saying to someone with clinical depression or clinical anxiety, just do those things, but don't don't seek out, no, no, don't take pills, we don't take pills. That's the message that I got for the first three years that I was sober. And, you know, that was the message that I was getting. And finally, I realized, you know, I'm sober, but I'm miserable. And finally, someone suggested, why don't you go see a medical doctor, a psychiatrist? And once I did, that's when the talk therapy, that's when the medications finally made a difference in my life. But I think uh, some of the old timers from the 50s, 60s, 70s recovery did a big disservice to a lot of people by telling them AA would solve all of their issues. I, I think that's right. And I, I don't think Bill and Bob would say that. I mean, I, I got very, very interested in the history of AA um, once mm -hmm. I kind of reached double digit sobriety because it's just so fascinating um, and read a lot of history of the program, both internal history in the sense of like, you know, as Bill sees it, and like there's a book that's, I think, um, part of the AA literature about, you know, Ebby Thatcher's life and, you know, Lois's story. And then there's also a lot of books written about the recovery movement from outside looking in, just from a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot about kind of Bill and Bob's perspective. And I don't believe at all that Bill and Bob thought that AA was going to solve the problems of everybody. And I mean, of course, it says it in the book, but we have a really strange way of leaving parts of the book out. To, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it says specifically in there that, you know, we should seek psychiatric help if, if we're, you know, if we think we need it. But even worse, I think, in those early years is when I started taking medication to manage my anxiety, they had people that took psychiatric medications go to special meetings. There was a P11 meetings. I remember that. It couldn't be more shaming. and. Even back then I thought, do they have special meetings for people that take high cholesterol medication? I don't understand because this clinical anxiety that I have is not connected to my alcoholism in the sense of, of course it fueled my alcoholism, but it wasn't going to be treated by the same thing that treated my alcoholism, just like my high cholesterol isn't gonna be treated by working the steps one more time. Yeah. Like, but if I take the medicine, my cholesterol is manageable. I mean, it's genetic, yeah. what are you gonna do? But also, maybe your clinical depression and maybe my anxiety, depending on a lot of things, is just as genetic as high cholesterol is. But even more than that, I think growing up in an environment where you're scared for your life all the time, you know, it, it reprograms your brain. Yeah, it does, and it contributes. And perhaps you went through the same kind of thing I went through when early on I made a decision in my sharing in meetings to start talking about my depression and about the mental health issues in my family. And there were a lot of people who felt like AA wasn't the place to do that, but I did it anyway just because I needed to destigmatize de the fact that just because I have clinical depression and I'm taking medication doesn't mean I need to be in a special AA meeting over it. And what I found, and perhaps you have too over the years, is that people would come up to me after I shared about mental health issues would come up to me after the meeting saying, I've been so afraid to talk about this in an AA meeting. People, people don't shy away from talking about using crack or using you know, marijuana or that sort of thing when they're sharing their stories, but very few people talk about anxiety or depression or... Yeah, bipolar disorder. Or PTSD. Did you find that as well? I did. And once again, I think it was the generation of old timers that we came up with. I know mm -hmm. you got a, you've got a little bit more time than me. Right. But, and then when I became a clinician in the 90s, um, there was still this weird tug of war between the mental health world and the recovery world. Yeah. You know, it was this sort of either or. And I had one of my early mentors say, it's not the chicken or the egg, it's a chicken omelet. You know, unless you treat the chicken and the egg, you yeah. know, you're still going to have... And because it really doesn't matter which one came first, right? Yeah. But I can tell you after five years of, and I worked my ass off at my recovery when I, when I first got sober. Oh, yeah. And to a large extent still do today. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying it wasn't from, from, for lack of effort to try to treat my anxiety with AA. I thought that was the only way I was going to do it. Yeah. I mean, I was going to meetings every day, sometimes two meetings every day. I was sponsoring a ton of people. I was involved in young people's AA. I was... Everything I did was recovery. I lived in a house with mm -hmm. three other guys that were um, all around the same age as me, the same amount of sobriety. Everything we did was recovery. So this is at 24. Right. You've come into AA. Mm -hmm. You got out of the third treatment. That handoff was a little bit 
better towards the program. Right. This is the period after that when you're in AA. Mm -hmm. So how long did you do that uh, for in early AA to try and deal with the other things that were actually going on under the surface? Well, I started talk therapy at about six months of sobriety because if I hadn't started to talk about some of that stuff that I couldn't talk about in AA, mm -hmm. um, I wasn't going to stay sober. Right. It, it had definitely gotten better. And the idea of the alcohol and the drugs being one of the biggest contributors to my life chaos was clear. Right. And I knew I couldn't return to, to drinking and using. So that didn't feel like an option. But, I mean, how many more meetings a day can I go to? How many more people can I sponsor? How, much, how many more times can I read the big book? I mean, I was calling my sponsor every day. I was... And most of your friends in AA and most of my friends in AA are not equipped to be able to deal let's say dispassionately or objectively with some of the stuff that we just have to air out mm -hmm. to whom only a licensed psychologist or someone in the mental health field could help us deal with. I spent 30 years in talk therapy for the very reasons you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about sharing our own experience, strength and hope. Mm -hmm. And you know this, I've had the same sponsor for 28 years. Oh yeah. Um, and he's become my best friend and mm -hmm. I can't imagine a world without him in my life, but he doesn't have an anxiety disorder. And so he doesn't have that experience, strength and hope to share with me. Um, I think he um, feels for me deeply when he knows I'm suffering, yeah. but you know, he doesn't try to fix it for me because it's not what a sponsor in AA is meant to do. Yeah. Um, but now I've got good people in my life. I actually have a really good friend in AA now that I've known for 25 years who has a similar anxiety disorder to me. Mm -hmm. And we have that experience, strength and hope. And yeah. you know, there was a, a point when him and I really first started getting close in recovery where both of us were sort of getting the message that mm -hmm. you're not really sober if you take SSRIs or psychiatric medication. Um, you know, We collectively decided that what we would tell people is the only person that would ever say that are people who have never suffered from what I've suffered from. Because right. if you suffer from the kind of anxiety I have, you would do anything yeah. to make it go away. And at least I'm doing something that is proven to clinically treat what I have, peer-reviewed, mm -hmm. been working for millions of people. It's under the care of a psychiatrist. It's people looking at me going, why did you suffer for so long? <laughs> and I have to come back and tell them because the people who I loved the most were the people who were telling me that I wouldn't be sober if I started taking psychiatric medications. And of course, 30 years later, we live in a different world. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I feel exactly the same way you feel. You know, one of the best messages I get from my sponsor is, are you taking it the way the doctor told you to? And my answer is always yes. And he said, then I don't understand what the problem is, you're good. The minute you, you start taking three two times a day instead of two one time a day, then call me and we'll talk about it. But as, as long as you're, you're under the care of a doctor. And there's never been a time, you know, in the 25 years since I've been treating my anxiety where any medication to treat my anxiety has ever triggered the allergy for me to want to, to drink and use. It just doesn't work. Yeah, same here. And, and most of the antidepressants that are out there that I've taken over the years are not the kind of drugs that if you take a handful of them, they're going to do very much for you except make you really sick. But I know that for, for anxiety and certain types of depression and other issues, there are things that can be taken abusively and that can trigger. So what your sponsor said to you and what I know for me is we do have to take as, as directed. You've gone into a little bit of detail about your active participation in AA in the early years to try and deal with some of these things that you later found out were best dealt with through medical care and talk therapy. Can you kind of walk me through the next number of years, maybe even up to the present day, with regard to some of the really great things that have happened because of sobriety and or some of the very tough things that you were able to get through as a result of AA? I think everything good in my life today is a result of my connection to the recovery community. Mm -hmm. I found out that I'm pretty good at helping particularly young people mm -hmm. um, figure out how to walk this recovery journey with a perspective that makes sense to them rather mm -hmm. than the perspective that makes sense to a 40-year-old. And so, you know, I was able to go to school, although it was hard because keeping in mind I had an eighth grade education when I got sober. Yeah. 
able to found a nonprofit whose mission is to carry the message of recovery not just to young people suffering from substance use issues, but from young people suffering from mental health issues. That you know, it's all about community. Being yeah. able to you know create a life where my job is to ensure that community exists for young people. Yeah. Um, so that's great. I mean, I get up every day and I love what I do. And mm -hmm. started doing groups in some of the urban core areas in Houston. So yeah. before I came over here, I was talking to a group of kids whose culture I don't understand and yeah. whose upbringing I don't understand because I'm not from that community. But to be able to talk to them about how to know if their drug use is a problem, how to seek out mental health services if they think they need them. Um, yeah. And that's been so rewarding to always have that piece of my life that I can um, feel the purpose in. I think, you know, maybe that's the greatest gift in recovery is that it's hard to get sober when you don't have a why or you don't have a purpose. And of course, we're wandering around like, you know, we don't know what we're doing the first couple of years we're sober, but sure. eventually finding something that feels like you're at least giving back a little bit or spending your time doing something with some purpose um, feeds healthy recovery yeah and so even though it's my job and I don't count it as my recovery because it's not because uh, you know people pay me to do that job right it uh -huh. still I think feeds my mental health in the sense of I'm not getting up and punching numbers into a computer all day I'm you know actually in relationship with people and I think it helps my anxiety too because whereas when I first got sober I was so scared of people now I spend my day interacting with people now that I know much more about your backstory than I've ever known before, I can see where what you're doing professionally and in the community with these young people are, is the very thing that you could have used at their age. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it is. And there's a little bit of a cheesy expression that comes out of one of the books that floats around recovery, but uh, the expression is, we teach best what we most need to learn. I get that. The one thing that I can promise people who are getting into recovery and end up with with some length of sobriety is that life is not going to stop happening. Yeah. You know, we're not um, special because we used to have a problem where we put chemicals in our body to the point that it was going to kill us. Like, you know, we're still going to have, I'm, you know, went through a five years of cancer treatment with the dad who was abusive to me. Oh, my. Um, and it was such a gift because... Was this your cancer or his? His cancer. His cancer, okay. Um, but I had made my amends to him, and him and I had... Hmm. And, Something about him getting older and getting lung cancer mm. mellowed him out to the point where he wasn't the same person anymore. And I think ma my making amends to him in a strange way prompted him to make amends to me in the best way he knew how, which was really remarkable. It was, you know, I made my amends and, you know, when I was a kid, I stole money from me. I did this. I did that. Yeah, yeah. And what can I do to set that right? And then one, one day him and I were in a car going to Dallas. And he pulled the car over on the side of the road and he looked at me and he said, when you were a kid, I did a lot of really terrible things and I'm sorry for that. Wow. And then he pulled the car back on the road and we never talked about it again. So how long was that relationship after that, that until he passed? Maybe like three to five years. He, amazingly, from the time that he was first diagnosed, he lived for about five years because he had one of the lobes of his lung taken out. Mm -hmm. um, but he smoked two packs of Salem's a day since he was 17, so that wasn't great. Yeah. But I was able to um, show up because we had made our peace and do the all of the cancer treatment stuff and you know the hospice care and making the decisions about when enough treatment was enough. What a gift for you and for him. And this is, the, the I think, the greatest story about that, and it almost seems unbelievable, but I promise it's true. I was at the hospice with him, mm -hmm. and I had been there for a couple of days, and um, it was over in the medical center, and some family members came up and relieved me. They said, why don't you just get out of here for a couple of hours? Mm -hmm. And so I went to an afternoon speaker meeting, and there was some young lady telling a story about taking care of her mom when her mom had cancer. Mm. I went to that meeting, and I listened to her, and I walked up to her and said, you'll never guess what I'm doing right now, mm. and told her a little bit about it. And then when I was walking out the door, um, I got the call that my dad had passed away, not while I was there waiting for him to pass away, but while I was in a meeting listening to somebody talk about how they got through their parent passing away. And so it was just one of those moments in recovery where, I mean, if you've ever questioned the presence of God in recovery, you know, for me in that moment, um, 
I couldn't question it anymore. I mean, I was exactly where I was supposed to be, even yeah. though in my mind I thought I wanted to be in the room when he died. Um, that wasn't where God wanted me. Isn't that something? And what a God moment that turned out to be for you, huh? It did, and then I, you know, I was back at hospice 30 minutes after he had passed away, you know, and there wasn't much to do. Um, once somebody's in hospice care and that far along, you know, they're not um, lucid, you're not talking to them, you're just yeah. basically waiting for them to stop breathing. Right. It was hard, but, you know, the gift in it is being able to show up, so, you know. And being able to share it with another person, did you ever talk to her or interact with her after that? Never saw her again. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I mean, for you to have been able to share that story with her and wow, but what a gift that was for you, huh? And you know, I've been through life since I've been in here. I've been through a marriage and a divorce. Mm -hmm. um, I've um, raised kids. Raised kids. Um, one of them was very much a special needs kid, but maybe the coolest person I've ever met in my life. Um, definitely the smartest person I've ever known. Hmm. And, you know, I've got a kid who's on his own recovery journey right now, a different kid. Yeah. Um, and he continues down that journey, however haltingly, you know, he's just, but he's a kid. You know, I never lived in the fantasy that my kid was going to use drugs for a period of time, go into treatment and come out and live happily ever after. You know, yeah. There's not very many happily ever after stories like mine in the sense of I picked up a desire chip in a meeting and never used again. Most of us have to figure things out for a period of time before it really grabs a hold. You know, we, we also live in a different world. We live in a world where you can get on your phone and I could have weed delivered here yeah. within the hour and I haven't smoked weed in 30 years. But you've had the opportunity to sit down with him, haven't you, and tell him a little bit about your own story. Oh, he knows my whole story. I, I've never been shy about that. The one thing I've been careful of is only to tell him the consequences that happened as a result of my drug use. I've never made it sound cool, but I've also not avoided the question. Shared that part of my story with him, obviously, to have some relatability. But then I don't know how many Cub Scout meetings he was like, you know, my dad's been in jail. <laughs> <laughs> and we live, we, we walk downtown quite a bit. We walk downtown quite a bit and because and, um, it's the closest dog park to us in Market yeah. Square is, uh -huh. is fun for us to go yeah. to. But we walk past the city jail when we do that. And I told him before, I was like, um, I spent a night or two in that building right there against my will. And so now, every time we walk past it, he's like, is that the place, Dad? Is that the place where you went? And I was like, yeah, hopefully the place I will never have to pick you up from. Yeah, let's hope not. Let's yeah. hope not. I, I wanted you just, if you wouldn't mind, kind of finishing up on some of the, the things that have occurred. You mentioned about your dad. You mentioned about your kids, the, the marriage. How long were you married before you divorced? Just about 20 years. Coming up on 20 years, yeah. How did the program get you through that? I don't know where else. Maybe people have uh, faith communities that they're a part of that, sure. that they can draw from. But I don't know where else I could have been at that time where I would have had as many men in my life who had lived through something horrible like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know which one of the two, but they're definitely comparable as far as like kind of the hardest thing I've ever been through. My mm. divorce was one of them. And my youngest son's send off to treatment. Those were you know, probably two of the darkest moments in my life. Hmm. And in both of those cases, I was able to pick up the phone and call men in recovery who could say, you know, I've been there, it's gonna be fine. And with my divorce at first, I was so just distraught that, you know, I was calling somebody every two or three hours. But the difference between a divorce and sending your kid to treatment is once you get your kid to treatment and you know they're there, at least you can sleep because you know your kid's someplace safe. Yeah. Um, the result of a divorce from day to day, you don't know what the next thing that's going to happen is. Yeah. You know, I, I um, still love my ex-wife. I wouldn't have married her if I didn't love her. I mean, you know, I, 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 uh, we just weren't very good romantic partners. Um, but I um, think that having so many people that could teach me that, that I didn't have to be pissed off at her the rest of my life. And yeah. I didn't have to hate her just because our marriage didn't work out. And a lot of things change over 20 years. You know, 20 years is a long time. And I had um, less than three years sober when we started dating. Mm. Um, and I definitely, by the time we got divorced, was not the same person I was when I had 
less than three years sober. I get that. Some of the things you're talking about, I've had some extraordinary situations that were terrible, catastrophic, etc. And to be honest with you, my first response wasn't always to call my sponsor. My first response was to go into isolation. I wondered, well, how did that work for you whenever you had difficult times? Did you automatically go to your sponsor or the program, or did you have the same kind of period of wanting to feel sorry for yourself for a little while? You know, I, I think that's a great question, and I think it's because anxiety and depression are sort of mirrors of each other. They're almost like two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. But the way that somebody with clinical depression and the way with somebody with clinical anxiety would react, it's different in the sense of, I don't know what it feels like to have clinical depression, but I know the people that I know that suffer from it, when it's on you or when it's on them, like it's not, I can't get out of bed. It's like- I don't want to talk to anybody. Right, but with anxiety, you're looking for something right that moment that's gonna, because it's like a fire alarm going off in your head. So I'm on the phone with anybody that will talk to me. Just, you know, tell me something that's gonna make this like feel better. And the worst thing is when people are really honest with you and they say, wow, it just seems like you're going to have to feel like crap for a while. And it's like, <laughs> that is not what I want to hear. I want to hear like, and been, been people giving me a reality check, like, dude, you're going through a divorce. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to tell you something in five minutes on the phone that's going to make you skip through the daisies tomorrow. But what I can tell you is you're still going to be okay. It's not going to feel okay, but you'll be okay. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. And you've got guys you sponsor and, and, and people you see in the program every day you can share that experience, strength, and hope with. Yeah, there's a, a person in recovery right now that is on the, at the very beginnings of that process mm. that I've talked to a few times. And, um, you know, just see so much of what I went through, which was I still believed, I think, in my heart that when I got married, I made a promise to God yeah. that no matter what, I was going to stick this out and hung in there longer than I probably should have because objectively it was obvious that the marriage wasn't going to turn around. We had just grown so far apart and the way that we saw the world that um, it wasn't ever going to come back together. But, you know, and then finally somebody in AA said, well, maybe you shouldn't have made that promise. Mm -hmm. Maybe that wasn't because maybe you made that promise to the wrong person. That's yeah. revelatory, isn't it? And it's true to some degree, but I would tell uh, my ex-wife this today. Um, I mean, I just, we talk almost every day because we have kids together. Yeah. But I don't regret that the almost 20 years we were married. The yeah. last couple were terrible, but yeah. we had some really, really good years together and, you know, um, yeah. had a lot of joy in the relationship along with all of the, the pain that we had, so. Well, then your ability to acknowledge that tells me that you've worked a pretty good fourth step around that that you've had the opportunity to process that and do whatever you need to do with the amends step and the forgiveness and everything else. Mm -hmm. That to me is demonstrating the statement you just made that you can still have this relationship with her that's loving, but you're just, you know, you're, you're not together, but you've got that common bond of the children. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And that's the one thing about divorce. If you have kids together, you're gonna be in each other's lives for the rest for of your lives. And so you can make some decisions about how you want that to be. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for the right, yeah. for the right people. So, well, listen, George, I want to thank you so much for doing this. This has been really cool. Um, I think that there are going to be people who listen to this who are inspired by it. You're a good man. You and I have known each other a long time. I love you. You're a great contributor to our meetings. Every time I hear you share, it's from the wisdom of a man who has worked a good program for 31 years. I mean, it's it's amazing to me. Almost 31 years. I can't say 31 in, in the meeting, though, because I'll jump all over me. But yes, I'm being, I'm being, I'm being, I'm being silly because you and I go to a meeting where they're not front you okay, a single 30, day. Okay, 30 of years. You're 30 years of sobriety. Years, yeah. And I honor that, and I thank you for doing this for me hey, today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Howard. I've enjoyed it. You bet. I have, too. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, George Y., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or other podcast providers. 
Tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.